Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie Wilson. Hello, Galit Kaunitz. Or is it Galit? I can never remember. Galit? Galit? <laughs> Galit? <laughs> I just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, participated in um, uh, USM, the graduation ceremony for all the graduate students. And I was like, they're not going to get my name right. And they didn't. How did they pronounce it? <laughs> even remember but it was something really strange anyway my name is Galit (laughs) well it was really you know it was really fun that they mispronounced my name and butchered it but no like in all honesty it was really fun because I got to hood my very first doctoral student that's amazing it was great it was like actually pretty emotional (laughs) I bet I remember when I was getting my doctorate and Benjamin Quelio was there to hood me and we started walking up because, you know, it takes forever for them to like get to your row and excuse you and blah, blah, blah. And uh, we stood up and it was finally time. And I looked at him and I go, I might cry. And he goes, I might too. (laughs) It is emotional. (laughs) And of course, today we're talking about advice for the 2019 grads. And I feel like this organically goes to my first piece of advice, which for those of you who are continuing your education into college or into grad school, one of my biggest things I'm passionate about is a lot of times you'll hear college students or grad students be like, I'm not going to walk. Who cares? It's not a big deal. No, I used to be like that, but now I'm on the other side. Well, here's the thing. It is a big deal. Like it's a huge accomplishment. And besides that, not to be like Cornball City, but the fact of the matter is in this world, not everybody gets an education. It's so true. When you really think about the privilege of higher education and getting to go to college and how blessed in the grand scheme of the world we are, I say like celebrate that. If not for yourself, which should be reason enough, do it for all those other people who never got this opportunity just walk in your ceremony. Just don't give me any grief about it. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) A thousand percent. Don't try to hide your shine. Exactly. Is that your advice? That is my advice. I, the only other thing I was thinking about, like what could be really useful to someone as they go into school. And I guess this is especially for those students who are transitioning from high school to college, which as a college teacher, I think can be kind of a hard transition sometimes, especially for music students, because even if you're really serious about it in high school, ultimately at that age, music is another type of extracurricular, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's very optional and the level to which you uh, engage with it and your degree of seriousness is very much a choice. And in college, that becomes an expectation because all of a sudden now you're in career training, which is the point of college. Mm -hmm. And 
so that can be hard because a lot of times the point of extracurriculars is that they make us feel good and that they're fun. And not that that entirely goes away when you start studying music in college, but those aren't necessarily the priorities or aims anymore. The point is to make you employable and competitive in this field with, let's be real, more supply than demand. So I guess my biggest piece of advice is if you can maintain a healthy, reasonable relationship to feedback And if you can really sidestep the pitfall of viewing feedback as criticism or experiencing that negatively, the objective of college is not to be like, oh, you're fabulous. No, you're so fabulous. Oh, everything's great. It's to really identify and figure out what you need to work out while you have the time to work it out. So if when your teacher tells you, you know, we got to work on this, or even if they tell you, okay, we got to go back to the drawing board with your embouchure or your this or your that, something fundamental that you're like, oh my gosh, I should have this worked out by now. I feel like everybody goes through that when they start a new degree with a new teacher. Like there's a certain amount of going back to basics that you do. And it doesn't mean you're failing, not cut out for this, um, not ready, behind, blah, blah, blah. It means you're doing the work that you got to do. And that's the point of college. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. Just keep it in perspective and stay the course. You're doing great. What about you? Well, I'll start off with a story. (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, story time, kids. Story time. So after my master's degree, I took a year off because mentally I was incredibly burned out. I was living in Austin and I was working a full-time job in a preschool, not music related at all. And I was having what probably is one of the roughest years of my life in terms of, you know, existential crisis. And I just had no idea which direction I wanted to go. And I was at this big crossroads and I didn't really know what to do. And I had this moment where it just overwhelmed me with the feeling of like, nobody cares if I'm practicing, nobody cares if I'm making reads, nobody cares if I'm gigging, blah, blah, blah. And that felt super, super negative. And then I kind of had an epiphany where I said, oh, but nobody cares. So I can do whatever I want. And it opened the possibilities to include anything I wanted. And all of a sudden it meant it didn't mean isolation. It meant freedom. Mm. And at that point I made the decision like, okay, I'm going to go back to my, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my doctorate. I'm going to pursue this field. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And that doesn't mean that it was all sunshine and rainbows after that. But I had this realization that the world is wide and I get to make my own choices. So I just want to say to all the grads out there that there is no wrong answer you are free to do whatever you want. I see a lot of um, unhappy grads who are in that place of, I can't get a job. I am hitting brick walls all the time and it's making me feel super upset and I don't know what to do. And I just want to say to all of those people, that's okay. And that's normal. And that's part of the process. You know, you have so many options out there and to just follow your instincts, follow your heart and know that your life is your own. I guess that's my advice. And I think that's so fitting with the interview that we're about to uh, share with our listeners because Kim Laskowski, as you guys are about to hear, has such a unique life path. And she really took time to pursue her interests and she frames her pursuits musically and otherwise in the context of happiness and pursuing fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I uh, ruminated on this interview for days afterward and, and spoke about it with lots of people in my life because it just really resonated. So I love that this particular interview very serendipitously is being paired with this topic. I think it's really fitting. And we've got some advice, not from us, 
from some of our listeners for the 2019 Double Read grads. We asked you guys what advice or words of wisdom you have for the Double Read graduates, and we got some really cool responses. Tim Gocklin wrote, keep your mind open, keep dreaming big, keep the love for what you do and say nay to the naysayers and always have a sharp knife. And I agree. (laughs) (laughs) And Dylan says three concise pieces of advice. One, more slow practice, cosine. Two, gap years are absolutely worth it. Thousand percent. Three, ooh, find a non-musical hobby. Yes, Yes. Dylan. (laughs) Andrea says, uh, always make one more read, which is really good advice. And Cassandra says, focused, detailed practice in tiny bits is exponentially more useful than hours of slogging at whole practices. Mic drop. (laughs) 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 And we have a bunch of double regrads that we want to give shout outs to. I think we just start the roll call. Go for it, girl. Chayu, congratulations on your doctoral degree in bassoon from University of Wisconsin-Madison. Devin, congratulations on graduating high school and headed to Boise State next year for bassoon performance. Madison went into high school playing the clarinet and graduated first. Chair Oboe, good choice, girl. Good choice. Sarah graduated high school, is headed to Juilliard to study with Elaine Duvoss. Couldn't be more thrilled. Congrats. Veronica graduated from high school and will be attending Florida State University. And the Miami University bassoons. We have three grads out of there, Emily, Michael, and Emily. And they're all headed off to graduate school in various things. Congratulations. Emily is going to FSU. Go Knowles. University of Northern Colorado Oboe grads Rebecca and Haley are both headed to Oregon, Rebecca to start her DMA, and Haley to teach music. We have another Haley who will be graduating high school and then going to Vanderbilt to be a bassoon performance major. Bassoonist Abby is also headed to Florida State for bassoon performance in the fall. Maya is headed to Temple University, and Ben is headed to the University of Arizona. Gabriel, just graduated high school in rural Alaska, is going to start a performance degree at the University of Alaska. Stay warm, Gabriel. Stay warm. Congrats to all of our Double Read grads. You rock. You did it. Now go out and kill it. That's right. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. Wow, this is so exciting. We are talking to Kim Laskowski, Associate Principal Bassoon of the New York Philharmonic. Welcome, Kim. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be doing this this podcast. It's the first podcast I've ever done. Oh, well, we're honored. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and so am I. (sighs) How did you first discover the bassoon? 
Well, it was through my family. Um, since I can remember, uh, I was being preened to become a musician. So my earliest memories are about three and four year, uh, being a three or four year old and um, being told by my mother that I had to, you know, go practice or even though I wasn't taking lessons, she just wanted me to go down and down to the basement and play the piano and amuse myself. Um, you know, just uh, listening to music. Also, I had a record player in the basement and my own records and she was always playing music uh, for us, my sister and I. So we had to take piano lessons when we were five. And um, we also went regularly to concerts and the ballet. My earliest remem uh, memory from a concert uh, or actually it was the performance of the Bolshoi Ballet at the Old Met mm. in 1960. Uh, and Maya Plitsaskaya danced The Swan by uh, Samson. And at the Old Met, there were uh, like pillars or columns that uh, gave people <clears throat> limited sight and I had to sit on her lap, and I remember the people in back of her yelling at her for having me on her lap. But uh, it's a, that memory, I, I will never forget it because a lot of the sconces in the old Met were already broken, so they were missing light bulbs and like falling off the, <laughs> the balconies. And I remember that when she finished the ballet, um, it seemed like endless amount of clapping like at least for 15 minutes wow. of course, since I was a child, it was only like probably five or 10 minutes. Um, then they promptly tore down the old Metropolitan Opera, which was on 39th street and they were getting ready to build Lincoln center. So uh, that's what was happening at that point. After that, I had <clears throat> gone to many concerts of, uh, the great pianists, and I saw Andre Watts and Rubinstein and uh, Horowitz. Uh, it, yeah, we were not allowed to listen to rock and roll. Uh, hmm. The first rock and roll we were allowed to listen to were the Beatles. Hmm. Then my mother promptly bought us tickets to see the Beatles in Forest Hill Stadium. I was nine years old. Uh, and we threw jelly beans because that's what you did at a Beatle concert. You threw jelly beans at the Beatles. Really? Yes. <laughs> and after that, uh, I also developed a great love for rock and roll and especially R&B. Um, but all the time, classical music was the main thing in my life. When I was going into middle school, I had to take an instrument so my sister and my mother sat me down in the kitchen and said, you are to choose the oboe or the bassoon because nobody's going to choose those instruments. So I chose, uh, I figured I was going to choose the oboe, um, but the girl next to me who was before me in line to choose an instrument had chosen the oboe. And I said, oh, that means that I can't play the oboe because there couldn't possibly be two oboe players. <laughs> In an orchestra. No, I knew there were more than that, but at least in the class. It was a small class. So I was thinking, I better, I better choose the bassoon. So I did. And um, as soon as I was able to play a low F, that was it. I was uh, really sold on the bassoon. I knew that I was going to do that for the rest of my life. And as a result, my schoolwork really suffered. Oh, <laughs> I, the reason that I had to think about what instrument I was going to play is because I was able to enter two different excel, accelerated programs. One was a two year and one was a three year. But since I had already skipped a grade in elementary school, um, I was I was encouraged to be in the instrumental program, mostly because my mother wanted me to be a musician. She wanted both of us to be musicians. And so she did get her wish, and then that just set off a whole turn of events that led me to 
uh, doing what I'm doing right now, which is this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about your journey um, starting to learn the bassoon, who your principal teachers were and where your training took place? Well, first, I'd like to say that my first piano teacher lived across the street, and that was uh, a woman named Mrs. Woods. And I was not really very happy with playing the piano because it was a little difficult for me, but I was really enamored of the theory lessons. So I had really solid theory beginning at the age of five. When I was 10 years old, and my mother decided that Mrs. Woods was too old to teach us, she made us get on a bus for an hour and a half into Manhattan to take piano theory and ear training at the Henry Street Settlement on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And there I had an ear training teacher named Mr. Godfrey, who really trained my ear. And I really have him to thank for my good musical training as far as that was concerned. But um, when I switched from piano to the bassoon, I was in the seventh grade and I started taking private lessons in the eighth grade with a man named Herman Gersten, who taught all woodwinds. And I learned a lot from him. But after a while, when I got into high school, I wanted to study at the Juilliard Pre-College. And there I took private lessons with Bernadette Zerkuli, who used to belong to the city ball- of the city opera, rather. And she was also one of the pool players at the Met. She was only five or six years older than me. And she was such an inspiration to me. And that's, um, I really enjoyed lessons with her. And she was uh, very instrumental in preparing me to audition for the Juilliard School which uh, I did enter at 17 into the class of Harold Goltzer. And I studied with him for five years at the Juilliard School, four in the undergrad program, and then they had a one-year master's, and then I graduated. I went there from 72 to 77. So that's basically my training in the United States. After that, I won a Fulbright scholarship, to study in Paris at the Paris Conservatory with Maurice Allard, who I always considered him my muse. My friend played a recording of the Vivaldi E minor uh, with Maurice Allard playing the solo. And after I heard that, I said, I have to go study with that man. I really consider him my muse and very inspirational. All the previous recordings of bassoonists that I had listened to, I wasn't really happy with. And now I realize that it was the recording quality and not the bassoonists. Mm. But with a large recordings, they've always been perfection, which brings to mind something that he said about one particular recording, which was the Saint-Saëns Sonata. He always complained that there was a problem between the master uh, recording and then putting it onto the vinyl. He said that something happened there and he wasn't as happy with his sound as he was in all previous recordings that he had done. Interesting. So he was very conscious of the sound of the recorded bassoon. And that really didn't, uh, didn't really ring a bell in my head until I had participated in many recordings while I was a professional bassoonist. And I realized that there were some recordings I liked better than others of myself. So it's really has, it's really an important thing how the bassoon is recorded. Anyway, in 1975, I had a woodwind quintet that planned to enter the ARD competition in Munich. And we made a summer event out of it. First, we traveled to France and studied at the Nice Festival with Jacques Lancelot, the famous French virtuoso, who the Francais concerto was written for, and we met Fernand Urbadus, who was the director of the Nice Festival. So I was meeting all my heroes. It was such a huge dream for me. Then after we left the Nice Festival, we stopped in Paris, and 
I had a friend of mine call Maurice Allard on the off chance that he was home for the summer. And he answered the phone and he said, come right out. So we went to his house in a Parisian suburb. And that's the first time I played for him. And I played for him on the German bassoon. And he said to me, of course, I want you to come and study at the Paris Conservatory with me, but you're going to have to learn the French bassoon because I don't teach German bassoon. This was at a time when the French bassoon was beginning to falter. Already in the Orchestre de Paris, um, the conductors there were requesting that the entire section switch to German bassoon or uh, they would have to resign from the orchestra. Wow. So Allard was getting very um, nervous about this. And of course, rightly so. So of course I would wanted to do anything he said. And I always loved the French bassoon. It's my, been my first love as far as uh, a solo instrument. I've changed my ideas a little bit since then. But I was very dogmatic. So um, I did went to the buffet factory the next day and ordered a buffet. And I got that instrument a year later. And at that time was the bicentennial celebration of the United States and France sent as a present to the United States, the Paris Opera. And they gave performances at the Metropolitan Opera House and in Washington. And I had lessons with Allard on the French bassoon uh, in New York in 1976. And the next year I was awarded the Fulbright and I auditioned for the Paris Conservatory and got in. And then I studied with him for two years in Paris. And that was an incredible experience. Not only was it incredible, but it was also demoralizing because it's, it's a very hard switch. But my training at Juilliard in orchestral and chamber music playing was so strong that even though I might not be able to play the Jolivet concerto, I certainly could play an orchestra. And my skills in ear training and theory were very, uh, were very good. But when I went into the Paris Conservatory, they put me in remedial for ear training, which means I took nine hours of ear training a week. Wow. Three, three hour classes. Well, they created a monster because I graduated fifth out of 100. Wow. And I was looking at the bottom of the list to see if I passed. And then I, I was the only person in the whole bassoon class that actually made it to the next grade. So that meant I could be in the, in the Orchestre Prix, the prize orchestra or the conservatory orchestra. And that meant every day. And I also got to play in chamber music because of the fact that I had passed to the next grade. I still wasn't playing the bassoon as well as I played the German bassoon, but I got better. But I toured all over Europe with the, with the Orchestre Prix, and I had a lot of great experiences there. Um, really, it was like the focal point of my life as far as when you have a dream and you realize that dream, no matter how it goes, you really feel like, oh, I did what I set out to do. So let me tell you a little bit about what it was like to be in the class with Allard. Oh, please. Well, that was frightening <laughs> because there were 13 of us. Now, at the Paris Conservatory, there are 12 places for French nationals and there are four places for foreigners. So I was, you know, the 13th person. There were not other foreigners in the class because many people don't play the French bassoon. We sat in a circle in a large classroom and we all had to play the same thing one after another. You know, you were required to prepare a scale every week and play it in its scale form. Thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths, sevenths, and octaves. Then... You had to play an etude. Then you had to play the solo piece and excerpts. Now, we, didn't nev we never had uh, private lessons the first year. 
The second year we had a few private lessons and that was due to a party that we had together because Allard was always having celebratory parties. He was a very strict guy, but he also liked to have a good time. So we would go out to a restaurant and have bouillabaisse um, or paella and unlimited wine. And then we would all get together and play quartets. So a, a student raised their hand when we were all sufficiently inebriated and said, <laughs> Maître, because we called him Master, Maître, can we have private lessons? And, you know, he never could refuse things that his students wanted. So he said, okay. So he sets up this whole schedule for private lessons. And a month later, he calls me over to the side and he said, Kim, it's normal to give private lessons in the States, right? Uh, it's what you do. And I said, yes, that's, we don't have masterclass teaching usually. We have private lessons. And he said, well, do students not show up for their private lessons? Just, you know, as a matter of course. And I said, no, we never uh, miss our private lesson. And he said, because, you know, a lot of students are not showing up for these, this lesson schedule I set up. Mm. So I think that he was not happy with that situation. He liked the idea of private lessons, but, you know, um, French students were not used to that. The regular schedule would be two master classes a week. They could run anywhere from three to four hours. Mm. And it was very hard to play all that stuff in front of each other, but that's where you learn the most. And I really feel that the more bassoonists or, or any, any instrumentalists have to play in front of their colleagues, it really, well, not only do they learn from the other colleagues, but it also puts the fear of God into them definitely because yes. they don't want to look bad. Now, mm -hmm. let me just say that at the Paris Conservatory and in a large class, you could think, okay, the, the emphasis was technique. And it was, but as Maurice Allard said in a speech at Yale in 1976, technique is a means and it's a very important means, but it's not a mean to an end. It's not a means to an end. It is something that you acquire so that you can express. And I want to say that if somebody came into the class, even if it was not perfect, if that person made music, if they turned a phrase in a way that touched people, for a large, that was the biggest thing that you could do. That was the best thing that you could do. So he was very much about expression. You know, he just didn't want things to be correct for the sake of being correct. You know, what's a funny thing is that I really feel that I don't really remember what my teachers told me. <laughs> mm. I do not remember. <laughs> I don't remember things that they said because I think that a lot of times students are very consumed by their own feelings of inadequacy. A thousand percent. That they don't hear the stuff. But I want to say that both my teachers, Harold Goldser, from whom I learned an immense amount about playing the bassoon, on a large who was an incredible inspiration to me and to this very day is an inspiration. I learned an immense amount from them and it feels more like osmosis than actually them telling me stuff, <laughs> which I think is great, you know, I mean, but every day I, I thank Harold for uh, making me into a functioning musician. Can you talk more about your journey from the Paris Conservatoire to winning the associate principal bassoon job in the New York Philharmonic? Yeah, I bet that was a really interesting transition <laughs> going back into the environment of the United States. And yeah, that's really interesting. This is probably a really important talk for me. I talk to my students often about their different paths because my path was so different than my colleagues at the Philharmonic that uh, sometimes I, you know, I just 
feel by myself. Actually, my path was different from the time that I left New York to go to Paris. And Harold Goldscher couldn't understand why I was doing that. Also, because, um, well, I had taken two auditions in the, the few months before I, um, or maybe the year before I left for Paris, and I either was runner-up or in the finals. And I was in the finals for the Metropolitan Opera, and I was runner-up for New Jersey Symphony. Those are the two, in, two orchestral my first two orchestral auditions. So, but the thing is, Harold never talked about our path and what he thought we should do because at that time, teachers didn't talk to you about that stuff because it was actually new to them. I want to say that in the years, in the 60s, that's when um, professional orchestras started to have year-round seasons and get a living wage. Before that, if you wanted to make money in the music business, you belonged to a radio or television orchestra. And those orchestras disbanded because of technology, the advances in technology. And orchestras started to have union representation and contracts that protected them. So the audition procedure didn't start to really develop until the early 70s. You know, the kind where 80 people showed up to an audition and then you had, you know, screens and stuff like that. That, that was happening as I was in school. Before it was, oh, they sent a few musicians to the conductor's studio and they played or they were interested, interested in a specific player and that's how people got a lot of those jobs. But then, of course, it changed. I wasn't, I, I just wanted to go on an adventure. Uh, that's why I wanted to go study with Maurice Allard. That was really important to me because I was like an incredible Francophile. I loved French woodwind playing. Um, I loved the European artists like Holliger. Uh, I loved to listen to the guys from the Berlin Philharmonic. And at that time, we got to hear a lot of those people. And we even started to get to meet them. So I wasn't thinking ever about, like, I needed the job because I didn't come from, I came from a working class family. And so since I had to work at silly jobs, you know, non-musical jobs, since I was like 13 or 14 to have pocket money, I wasn't adverse to doing something just to tide me over to my next big project. So when I came back from the conservatory and I only played the French bassoon, I didn't even know how to get into freelancing, you know? So I took a job at uh, Dean and DeLuca, which was a gourmet food enterprise. And I started to get into other kinds of music like rock and roll and improvised music. And well, I ended up, actually quitting the bassoon for two years. I was going to go to cooking school. Wow. And I was all set. I was, I was registered and all. Um, I met my husband during that time period. Really, I stopped playing. I didn't play the bassoon for two years. <laughs> um, but I was living in a neighborhood, the same neighborhood I live in now, which is right near Manhattan School of Music, where Juilliard used to be. And... I was hanging out with musicians while I wasn't working. And occasionally they would say to me, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing." That. One day my husband wakes up and says, you better, you better start playing the bassoon again. So of course I listened to him because it's what I really wanted to do. And I took up the German bassoon again. I hadn't played it for five years. And I picked it up and then I started doing very, what we call junk work, small freelance, non-union engagements. And since I had been away from New York so long, nobody really wanted to see me because I wasn't part of their circles. It was a good 10 years before I started to get steady work. And I remember that. 
I, when I hit five figures, I think I made $12,000 one year. I thought I had made it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) this is funny, right? It's, it's almost unbelievable. It's so, so I'm playing and getting some work and around 1988, 89, I started subbing on Broadway. Um, for a while, I was principal bassoon of the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. I had won a principal position uh, in a regional organ, you know, very, uh, maybe an eight-week season. After, and then after I had children, I couldn't keep traveling to Poughkeepsie. So I started subbing on Broadway uh, because a very good friend of mine landed Phantom of the Opera. She said, I'm going to use you as my principal sub. So I did that. And that started breaking me into other work. And I would substitute with orchestras like St. Luke's or American Symphony. And at one point in the mid-90s, around 1996, I was given my own Broadway show, which ran for two years. I had taken a couple of auditions during that time. I had made the finals of the New York City Ballet, uh, Ballet Orchestra. And they would call me to sub, but it was just incredibly stressful just to sit in the pit and play Symphony in Three Movements by Stravinsky or the Stravinsky Violin Concerto without having a rehearsal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that's when that happened to me, that's when I learned how to prepare. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand how to prepare for things when you were not, well, I was a good sight reader. I actually uh, was the top of my sight reading class in, at the Paris Conservatory. I was a good sight reader, but going in and doing Stravinsky takes a little bit more than sight reading uh, or preparing your part. You must prepare the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you would get scores, you pour over the scores, you would play with the recording, you would uh, do a lot of things to prepare for that. And at the same time that I was doing a Broadway show, which I knew was going to close after two years, I also decided that I would make a game for myself. If I practice a lot and very task-specific practicing, which now is called deliberate practice, mm-hmm. um, and I learn how to do all the things that I felt were weak, I wonder if my phone would ring with more freelance work. So I did that little project, and, uh, and it worked. As a result, I landed two tenure-track jobs. One was the second bassoon at the New York City Ballet and principal bassoon of mostly Mozart Orchestra, which was where I learned how to play principal. And that was a very difficult job because you had to play two different programs, some of the most difficult music like Mozart and other classical composers, Beethoven, and you had two full programs each week, and you were the only principal. You didn't work with an assistant. So while I was playing at the ballet up in Saratoga, I had and concurrently doing mostly Mozart for the summer, I got a call from the personnel manager from the New York Philharmonic, and they said, um, can you play the Parks concerts with us, principal? And I said, no, I'm, I'm up here with the ballet. So they said, okay, thank you. Ten minutes later, they call and say, would you please play associate principal next season? I said, well, yes, I would like to do that, but I have to run it by my management here at the New York City Ballet. So eventually I worked that out. And I was asked to substitute as associate principal. And of course, I had never played in a symphony like that before. So I was already getting nervous. During the time that I was stopping at the Phil, they had an audition procedure. And I wanted to talk about my audition procedure because that was very interesting. Um, there were about 72 applicants. And even though I had been subbing in the chair for three months, I had to start in the prelims. Um, so... I started in the prelims like everybody else, and I advanced. First, I didn't even think I should take the audition because I hadn't done an audition in seven years. 
and I was 48 years old. So I had to reinvent myself. I mean, I already started, at every turn I was reinventing myself. Like, how does an orchestral player play? Uh, what are the things that are required? So I would quantify everything. And then I would do that. It, I mean, it didn't hurt to have fantastic training from Harold as far as being an orchestral player. So I organized myself. I passed the prelims. I passed the second round. I was in the finals, but I was the only person in the finals. So they said, we can't hire you because we have a rule that says if there's only one person in the finals, we have to have another audition or you can't just have one person. So after that, I just went back to work the next day like nothing happened. Wow. <laughs> I was thinking, I can't believe I got this far. This is fantastic. Because I already was making a good living, you know, I mean, between my jobs. And I had plenty of stuff to keep me busy. And I was in demand. I had, over a 10-year period, built up my, you know, my credibility. Really, the whole technique of getting work is to be prepared to prepare yourself correctly to go into the job. And that's from showing up on time, the way you deal with the situation and your colleagues, and then the music. Everything must be carefully thought out. So, okay, let's get back to what happened with the Philharmonic. So they said, we're going to have another audition where we're going to invite people from all over the country and we're going to include you in that, in the finals. So they didn't completely dismiss me because they could have just done that. So it's not like they weren't interested. So that happened six months later, and I was already back at the ballet because I had to go back to my old job. In the meanwhile, I'm scheming. I'm really adopting new ways of preparing and new ways about managing performance anxiety, and new ways to come to credible yet individual interpretations of excerpts. Mm -hmm. So I, I go to this audition. I play the audition, and they say, okay, we're interested in you, but you need to come back and play a re rehearsal this week. And I'm thinking, my goodness, they heard me all year play, play a lot of stuff. I played like a lot of exposed, uh, you know, solo work. And they still need to hear me again. So I go and I say, oh, yes, of course, I'm going to go. So I do that. And after the rehearsal, they call the committee back and then they gave me the job. And so that was actually five rounds and a period of six months because it's very rare to be playing a position and then get and win, then win the audition. Um, I was really happy uh, when I got the job. And, uh, and it was great because there were a lot of my friends in the orchestra already. So uh, that uh, I, I hadn't communicated with in many years, but they still were people that I knew and were close to. And one of them was Judith LeClaire, who we, spent a summer at Spoleto together and we were inseparable. So we just continued our friendship Aww. from then. That was 30 years Aww. before. So yes, it was really a wonderful thing to, I'm very grateful and being in the Philharmonic uh, has been exciting and it still continues to be exciting. Professional biographies look so clean and planned but our reality is often very different. And I know I have personally felt like um, the pressure that a certain amount of success has to be attained on a certain timeline and by a certain age. If it, if it hasn't happened by this point, it probably won't happen. And you coach a lot of young musicians in a very competitive field. And so, I don't know, I, I just found this story so inspiring and, and fascinating. And I'd just love to hear you reflect on that perspective from your journey. This is a, a little uh, anecdote 
that mm -hmm. I'm not even sure actually happened, but my colleagues have repeated it to me several times. The biggest uh, uh, obstacle to me getting hired was that I had no symphonic experience. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like a traditional symphonic experience. So when they were having the discussion, the committee with the music director, who was Lauren Mazel at that time, uh, they, somebody said, well, what is she doing? Where does she work? And somebody said, she's second bassoon at the New York City Ballet. And Lauren said, oh, she plays at the ballet? Oh, that music is much harder than anything we play here. Give her the job. Wow. <laughs> Now, I just want to say that this took somebody who he had so much uh, knowledge of repertoire. Most conductors, they learn certain pieces and they keep doing them. But Mazel, he had so many in his head that he was familiar with all our repertoire over at the City Ballet. So, uh, you know, he could make that statement. Um, now, getting back to the versatility of my career, where I played, you know, I, I played with rock and roll musicians. I, I still do some performances that are, you know, without music and improvised you know, during the summer when I'm on vacation. I, for me, who had parents that grew up in the Depression, who were extremely poor, tell me every day of my life, you better find something to do that you love because you're going to be doing it most of your day. And also that money is not a thing that makes people happy. Hmm. To have parents that were telling me that, I never felt the need to have stability um, and material things. And sometimes I feel that it was a mistake to tell my children all the time that material things are a trap, but I do all the time anyway. What happens is you live more as a person who um, is not tied to things. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, you can just get up or, and, and travel somewhere or, you know, if, uh, if you don't have too many financial commitments. So I worked on that premise most of my life that, well, you know, so we'll just do something. I know I could do something to keep it together. And so that didn't give me so much of an impetus to go out and get a steady job because I was looking for a different experience in life. You know, I mean, that's just me. I don't say that this is right or wrong. That's mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, that's just something that that uh, happened. It was circumstantial. I grew up mm -hmm. in the 60s, in the early 70s. Um, I'm a product of the hippie generation. So, and, and I live in New York, which means, you know, it's so many things. You, you get exposed to so many different modes of thinking. So I could have gone through the rest of my life the way I was going. I mean, I did have like, you know, uh, medical the benefits and the pension through the union. So I did have that kind of stability. Well, and it seems like that perspective really freed you up to leave yourself open to whatever life had planned for you. Whereas maybe someone with a different perspective might have felt the need to kind of intentionally, do you know what I mean? Like you invited yes. new things into your life with your perspective and your openness. Right. And that I have my mother to thank for. My mother really loomed large in, in forming uh, my ideas about things. And, and I really thank her for that. And for only thinking that, for thinking that only art is important. You know, um, I like to talk a little bit about my teaching uh, because although I have had a varied career and all that stuff. My approach to the bassoon is pretty traditional. And mm -hmm. I really um, look for consistency. I'm training for orchestra work because you, that's something, if you haven't learned how to play in that style, 
you know, it's very hard to, um, to, to make the transition from just being a free spirit and then mm -hmm. going the orchestral route. Mm -hmm. So I really, I, I, you know, I, I try to teach consistency of sound, um, paying attention to details and, and, um, Although I haven't been teaching for that long at this level, you know, and I haven't had like gobs of students, although I, you know, I mean, I have a, a, enough students. I, a lot of my students have done well on orchestral auditions and have found jobs, but my real joy is taking students who either develop late or they have problems and setting them on a path to where they can really function very well in an orchestral setting and mm. can learn how to have good technique and to make excellent reads and to regulate their vibrato and be able to, you know, uh, play good intonation from note to note, all those kinds of things. So, you know, I'm a pretty, I'm very traditional uh, as far as that's concerned. Because I see that that will make uh, it more, they'll have more choices. They will be able to go to an audition in advance. How is that kind of teaching um, different, you know, teaching somebody who has fundamental problems or is a late bloomer? How is that different from teaching somebody who just has everything set up perfectly and it's just kind of a straight shot to success. Well, I think that I'm not sure if anybody really has a straight shot to success. That's only, it's how they worked and um, they have to organize themselves. I feel like, uh, you know, I do remedial stuff for students that really don't know how to work and, and don't know how to, you know, make an, uh, to be able to make an attack and stuff like that. I, uh, I don't have one way of teaching each person. It's very tailored. Oh, I'm, of course, everybody has to play scales and etudes and learn all that stuff. But um, students that, uh, for some reason, didn't, like, um, they don't, each student doesn't put together things the same way. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And also, everybody conducts their lives differently, too. I have immensely talented students who really can do everything, but they fill their schedule up with a million things to do. So it always sounds like, sounds pretty good, but never, you know, like manicured. And then other students that it takes, it takes them longer to learn something. Well, I work on things like that too, like how to learn things because mm. I struggled with that. How do you learn a whole etude? Uh, what techniques? It's not just about uh, playing playing it from the beginning to the end. It's also not just about playing in sections and learning a little bit every day. No, it also has to do with um, hearing, you know, the musical phrases and memorizing those in your mind and singing it, and also certain sight things that you have to do and and. Uh, uh, it just is a whole lot that that can help you learn things faster, and uh, I don't think that we had enough of that kind of education in music schools, especially like they could give classes on that. Um, Maurice Allard once said something to me that really like cut me to the quick, and that was he said, "I don't think that you assimilate fast enough." I didn't assimilate new material fast enough. Mm. Certainly not as fast as the French kids. But they had the advantage that the first thing they learned how to do was to solfege. Mm -hmm. So when they learned notes, they were thinking of each note. They weren't looking at a note and then trying to discern like what note that is, you know. They had been reading clefs. They had been solfeging. They've been you know, they've been memorizing in a certain kind of way. We didn't have that kind of education in the United States. And they really have an advantage. That's why uh, 
you know, kids could come in and play the whole first movement of the Jolivet concerto after a week. And I didn't have that kind of ability. Uh, now I could do that because I quantified what they did. And it's really helped me with my job because we have gobs of music to learn. Mm-hmm. And also the new books that are about, uh, uh, that have come out about how people learn and mm-hmm. how many days it takes and how many repetitions. And those things are important because we have to get things in our ear. As a member of the New York Philharmonic, I know you have had a variety of experiences in traveling and playing for lots of different audiences in different environments. And I would love if you could tell us about either maybe a favorite or just poignant memory that you have traveling as a musician. There are many. So I want to start out with North Korea, mm-hmm. which was... Um, a humbling experience because that is a world that uh, very few people get to look in on. And we didn't even have that much of a chance. We couldn't walk anywhere by ourselves. We had to be escorted everywhere. Those of us who wanted to see more um, went to performances given by uh, theater groups, sort of very similar to Shen Yun, the Shen Yun experience. And um, I also got a chance to give a master class at the conservatory. And that was very interesting. But it was a society that's completely controlled. And we were almost not going to go. We were, we were protesting going because of the regime. But we made some uh, we made some concessions, and we said, "Well, if you can uh, set aside a certain number of tickets for regular people." Uh, so we did have some audience members who weren't just the governmental government officials. But Pyongyang is just uh, a city of government workers and. I guess, professors, and it's really the lucky people and not the regular people that get to live there. But when we performed, and it was the end of the performance, it was very emotional. Uh, We were crying. People in the audience were crying. It was was very uh, emotional. And then we went to Vietnam. It was, I think, the same tour. And that was also very emotional since I had gone through that the period where we were protesting the war in Vietnam. Uh, I just felt like I had to apologize to everybody uh, every moment. And people would say, it's okay, it's okay, you know. But I did make some friends there. So that was a wonderful experience going there. I highly recommend it. Um, I love going to China and I've made a lot of friends there and I taught there a lot playing there and teaching there at the Shanghai Orchestra Academy has been some of the some of my most favorite experiences that I've had in the past few years so that that's uh, I coached some groups of women players last December and we went through very difficult repertoire and and they performed so well so that's very exciting to work with them That sounds incredible. It was fun. What advice do you have for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? What I tell students when I give master classes is that not everybody is going to get an orchestra job because there are so many players and and it's really luck uh, if you win an audition. I mean, it's not completely luck. I mean, you have to have a certain set of circumstances where you play in a certain style and you touch the jury. You really have to impress the jury with uh, something. Mostly that's just musical. Um, But for you to get to the point where you can touch them musically, you have to have all these other variables in place. I say to students that having a job in an orchestra is not what, qualifies them to be a musician. Mm. And if they really love music and they can't stand to do anything else, 
they will succeed at having a life as a musician, whether it be, um, you know, a person doing chamber music or having a teaching position, whether you want to get your own stuff together. There are opportunities. It takes a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice, really a lot of sacrifice, because it means that you're just, you might have to wait a long time before you have any stability, or you may, you, you might have to accept that you're not going to have real stability and you have to work those things out. But having a job in an orchestra does not define you as a musician. You are a musician by definition, and then you find your path. That's such a gorgeous point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's truth. It's truth because you know how there's some really talented people and they're doing, and then they just like stop doing it and do something else. Oh yeah. That's fine. That's, that's great. I mean, if they, it's great to be interested in a lot of things, but there are some people who don't want to do anything else and those people will find their way. But what I'm telling you is, you know, what I've told students, and there's no real one way to do anything. Everybody has their own path. You know, I know a lot of people that have taken 50 orchestral auditions, and then they got the job, like a fantastic job. I'm not going to name who those people were. They're not bassoonists, but I'm sure there were bassoonists that did that. If that's what you want to do, just the process, the whole process of doing it. Like, for me, I'm really into the process of if I want to change something or do something a new way or have a new way of thinking, I try to incorporate that like every week, you know, I have to play some different piece or how am I going to make make that work? It's reinventing yourself at every moment. And and it's very refreshing because then you, you know, it's never the same old, same old, you're doing a new thing. You grew up in the, in New York and came of age in the sixties and seventies. And around the time when orchestras started coming of age in America. And I was wondering how you perceive the rise of women in orchestras. And are we at a point where we're there? Are we doing it? Or is this something that is still growing and still becoming accepted? Still growing and still becoming accepted. In certain instruments, it's okay. And in other instruments, it's not so okay. But it's changing. It's changing for the better. But, you know, there can never be enough equality. That's all I can say. Really, there can never be enough. Well, this seems like a great place to close. Thank you so, so much. It has been such a lovely chat with you. And we really cannot thank you enough for your generosity and your insights and it's just been amazing thank you so much thank you very much for having me both of you i it's it's really been a great honor for me we hope you loved that interview with kim laskowski don't forget to follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter and hey we've got a brand new look so check it out and you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, YouTube, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Galit, who's coming up next time? We've got an awesome interview with Rusta Luna, solo English horn of the San Francisco Symphony. He is awesome and you won't want to miss it. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.